0: Good morning, everybody. Um, today, I decided I want to diverge a little bit from our exposition of Galatians. Um, by all means, we will continue in that. Uh, but I want us to think today, um, given the opportunity and the Sunday that it is, uh, to talk about two very foundational things that we do as a church. Okay? So, just to get you thinking, let me ask you a question here To start, um, why is it that we meet from Sunday to Sunday and every Sunday after that? Are you uh, here for the coffee? You know, that Folgers really gets you going. You want to get here and have that? We got the best Folgers in town, you know? Or is it, uh, well, maybe it's the social aspect of church, right? Is that why you come? For the social benefits? Well, it is good to be with Christians, right? But you can get together with Christians on a boat this afternoon, right? Or you can get together with them up at Sophie's, let's say. Or for that matter, you can bump into another Christian up at Walmart. And yet we know that that's different, right, from the way in that we come together as an assembly, a formal body, a church, every Sunday. And by the way, it wouldn't have to be in this building We could assemble at the park, which we're going to do later in the summer, right? So no matter matter where it's at, when we assemble together, we we are the church. But what I'm asking this is because I want you to begin to think about what makes a church a church. Why is this assembly a church, but when you bump into another Christian at Walmart, another new church doesn't suddenly emerge? Okay, What defines a church? Well, I think you know this, but at the heart and this isn't by all means a comprehensive definition of what makes a church a church but if we can just look at the base the bottom of it okay at the foundation of a church is the gospel right in fact you could say the letter of galatians was written because the foundation the gospel heartbeat was being threatened right they were undergoing heart surgery and but what was being replaced was not a new living heart but a cold dead Muscle called the law. That's the kind of heart surgery you don't want to have. The church was losing its footing. So Paul had to really write to them urgently and forcefully. Because really what was happening was they were saying, Listen, we're getting rid of the, what God has done for me. And we're now starting to teach what I'm going to do for him. A kind of righteousness that actually Jesus died to save us from. At the heart of the church, of course, is the gospel. It's vital, it's essential, it's at the core, and it's irreplaceable. You could say a church without the gospel is not a church at all. So it really then should come as no shock that the structure and the organization, the practices of the church, as it's laid out, as we see in the New Testament, are tied to the gospel. Okay. This is why we have elders and leaders who proclaim and preach from week to week the truth of the gospel. And what I want us to reflect on today is how the church does two practices, okay, which we refer to as the ordinances. And the reason we do that is because we see in Scripture that they were ordained by Jesus Himself. Okay? And they're given to us to anchor us to the gospel. And therefore, we cannot afford to let them go or to get them wrong. And church history will tell you at what cost it it came when people have gotten it wrong. Christians killed Christians because they confused about these things. And if we do get them right, if we understand what they're for why God has given them to us, then we'll be well on our way to seeing what makes a church a church. By now I think you've realized that what we're talking about are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay? Let's pray together as we're going to think about these two things. Heavenly Father, we ask, even as we prayed in starting this morning, to hear You speak. You have given us, You have commanded us to do these two things. And they give meaning and depth to our relationship with You personally and corporately as a body. So as I'm talking about these, I'm thinking about us coming together as one church to do this together. So Father, we ask then for understanding and that what we do, You would keep from becoming some kind of mechanical, robotic Empty ritual. Thank you for your word, and we ask for clarity and understanding as we open it together today, in Jesus' name, Amen. So, baptism uh, and the Lord's Supper. Uh, these are our. I'm going to be in many passages today, but Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, and then Matthew twenty-six uh, verses twenty-six to twenty-nine. We'll kind of focus a little bit on. The way I want you to think of these two things, these two practices, is as the Christian essentials. Not the essentials of doctrine, but the the core, the essential of our practice. They are, you could think, the epicenter of the Christian faith. They're the the core things about what a church does. And the first one that we see is in Matthew 28, 19. You can open your Bibles there, and I'm going to put it up for us on the screen. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, he writes, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, when you get down to studying that verse, what you're going to see is that the main command, the main one in there, is to do this, to make disciples. And then attached to that, you have these clauses that are going to give, well, this is how we go about doing that. Here's how you do it. You go making disciples in baptizing them and then in teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Okay, so here's the progression then you see for an individual. First, you become Jesus' disciple, right? And then you get baptized, right? You see that order there, right? So who is supposed to be getting baptized? Believers in Jesus Christ, right? And this is the order we see everywhere in the New Testament, okay? So in Acts 2, verse 41, this is right at the close of Peter's sermon. After the Holy Spirit has come down, he's finished his message to the Jewish crowds and it says this. So those who received his word, notice, they received his word, were baptized. And there were added that day to what? To the church. About 3,000 souls. Okay, So you see the order there. A person comes to receive God's word, the gospel, and then they're baptized. And this is what we call, we just for clarity's sake, we call this believer's baptism. So it's not when a person is born that you do this. But when a person is born again, okay, who's born from above, it's when they have, as Romans says, confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believed in their heart that God raised Him from the dead. Or as it says here in Acts, they've received it, right? They've, the gospel has become their own through faith. It's been applied to their life. They've been made new by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the Holy Spirit does not make you new when you get baptized. You're made new when you repent of your sin and when you believe in Jesus as Lord. You'll never find a passage in Scripture that advocates baptism, water baptism, as a necessity for salvation. Okay, so let me take you a moment now to one passage that you would say, well, that seems to say something else, okay? So let's just get this out of the way. 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes this, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, at first glance, that would appear to say the opposite of what I just said, right? It sounds like Peter's saying, well, in order to get saved, it's by being baptized, okay? But as we learned in our class of how to study the Scriptures, this is why you don't take a phrase by itself, right? Clearly, when it's connected to something else, right? Because now Peter says, well, let me explain myself. Let me explain what I just said. In fact, fact, you could say he anticipates that he's going to be misunderstood, so he clarifies it. Baptism, which corresponds to this, and he's talking about how Noah and his family were saved on the ark, now saves you. Now, he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Okay? So he clarifies. What I'm talking about, Peter says, is not water baptism. It's not the outer washing that saves you, that is, the removal of dirt from the body, but this, right? An appeal to God for a good conscience. So what saves a person, that is, what water baptism represents, is an appeal to God to be forgiven and made new. That's how your conscience is made good. If you want a clear conscience, okay, knowing that all your sins are forgiven, they're dealt with, All right. here's what you do. God, I know that I've sinned willfully against you, but now I see that Jesus has paid the highest price for my redemption. And He's guaranteed it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now I accept this offer of salvation. Okay? And if that's your humble request to the God of heaven, that Jesus says, then my Father is now your Father. And He will graciously give you His Spirit. Right? Because Jesus says, you ask. Just ask and you will receive. So it's not about the outward act of baptism. It's about receiving what has been done to you. So you see, even in this passage, that water baptism represents a spiritual reality. Okay, Something's happened to you inside. And appeal to God for a good conscience. So then you're saying, well, if baptism isn't necessary for salvation, right? And everywhere we look, we see that it follows after conversion. Then why would Jesus ask his followers to do it? Well, what does it mean? What does it represent? Well, the word for baptize, okay, is baptizo, okay? And it, this is what it means. It means to dip, to plunge, or wash. And really, the idea is to be immersed, okay? That's how we see it being done everywhere in the New Testament. So, for example, when John the Baptist and his disciples are baptizing the people of Israel, it says that it was in a location where there was much water. Now, that would only be important if you were immersing somebody, right? So, if a person needed only to be sprinkled, then even a little bit of water would have been sufficient, right? Right? And for that matter, if the New Testament writers wanted to communicate sprinkling, then there was another Greek word they could have used for that. They don't use that word. They use this word, baptize, to dip, to immerse, to plunge in. Okay. So why would Jesus have us to take the plunge, okay, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Okay, here. Here's what I want you to pause and think back to the origin of this command, really. Remember when Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing them. Right? Think about what it means to make a disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Here's a clear statement from Luke. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, Cannot be my disciple. So to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means bearing one's own cross. You say, whoa. That means no one becomes a disciple by someone else's work. You have to bear your own cross. By the way, that doesn't mean to wear a cross around your neck or get it tattooed on your wrist. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But it wasn't a fashion statement back then. Right? It was a means of death. Jesus was put to death on a cross. And so, what he's saying is that anyone who's going to come to him must be willing to die to himself or to herself, must be willing to put to death the old nature. Because it's destructive. So when we are saying we want to make disciples, we're asking, we're pleading with other people to see the horrid effects of the old self. And you need to die to your old ways. Oh, it may be easy, it may be comfortable. But Jesus said, you need to look ahead and see what the end of all that is. It's destruction. It's being cut off from God forever in hell. But He said, if you lose your life, If you come bearing your own cross, then actually here's what will happen. You'll save it. Jesus didn't just die on the cross so we could die. We needed to die to ourselves. But this, we also have this, that He was raised to life so we could have new life. Here's another passage I want you to see. This is when Jesus' men came to him and said, hey, would you um, do us a favor? We want to sit at your right hand, your left hand, when you come into glory. Okay, And here's how Jesus responded to them. He said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And he puts it this way, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Well, what's Jesus saying? Really, The force of this is almost as if Jesus is saying, are you able to be drowned with the drowning with which I am drowned? He's using baptism as a picture of his death, right? Because he's going to be put under in the grave, completely immersed through death. That's what baptism is a picture of. It's of death. And not just death, of course, but also life, right? And that's why Jesus commanded his followers to do this thing. They've undergone a spiritual death to self, and baptism powerfully displays that. So I love what Paul says here in Romans 6. He says, Do you not know, he's writing to these Roman Christians, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, okay, he's telling them, remember the time when you were baptized? Well, when that happened, you were baptized into His death. You were united to Him. We were therefore Right? We were buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So here's what baptism represents then. It's a sign, it's a symbol of what's happened to us when we've trusted Christ. So really it's a symbol of this. My union... That's what that verse is saying. My union with Jesus Christ. You're united to Him in death. Your old self is gone now. It's been crucified. And you're united to Him in life. You're going to walk in newness of life. So what a vivid picture then. You think of when people are baptized. It's the gospel on display. Whenever the church practices baptism. It is visibly portraying the work of Jesus Christ. Who died for us was immersed, put under, and raised again to life. So it's not me doing some right for God, it's a proclamation of all that God has done for me in uniting me to His Son. I love that, but not only is it a symbol of my union to Jesus Christ, it's also a symbol of my union to the church, to you guys, Right? Here's what Paul said, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So baptism also brings us into union with a body of believers. And yes, that happens spiritually the moment you're saved. But Jesus doesn't just call us into some kind of undefinable relationships with every believer on planet Earth. Okay? Where we're somehow connected with all believers but spiritually, but not in real life. No. In other words, Jesus doesn't call us to live a solo Christian life. He commands us to make the invisible connection visible. Okay, And how we do that? Through water baptism and then entrance into the membership of an actual church. So you read the New Testament. Here's what you're going to find. Nowhere are there any unbaptized believers. As soon as water is available, believers were getting baptized. And they were then counted in an actual church, not just the universal body of Christ. They became part of a local church. So, think of it this way. Baptism is one's entrance into the New Covenant community. So, what I'm saying is there's no delay with individuals who have clearly trusted Christ. In fact, the only instance when I would say, maybe we ought to delay a baptism... Maybe when it's advisable is when we're talking with children, right? Because sometimes we may not be sure that they really understand the meaning of trusting Christ, or we don't really see yet the genuine spiritual life that comes with trusting Christ, okay? And in which cases, but that's going to vary, right, from child to child. So it takes discernment from parents and from church leaders. But in every other case, okay, when we come to the New Testament, believers get baptized. So it's not something. To put off. And I wanted to talk about it today, early on, so that you know in August we hold a baptismal service. By the way, we don't just do it once a year, but we designate that day. But if you were to come to faith in Jesus Christ any other time of the year, we would say, well, yeah, let's do do this baptism. Let's get together. I wish we could do baptisms every week, right? I mean, people are coming to the Lord. And I'll tell you something, when you do this, okay, so think about it then if you haven't. And when you do it, you're going to have three wonderful blessings in your life. Three things. Look at, listen to this. Okay, number one, you'll be proclaiming the gospel because it's what it displays. Number two, you'll be obedient to Jesus Christ because he commanded it, right? Therefore, when you're obedient, you're going to have more joy in your life. Joy comes with obedience to Jesus. And number three, you'll be reminded from there on out that you have been indeed consecrated to God. You've been set apart. You've been marked. Okay. So, in my opinion, if you have already taken the greatest plunge, okay, which is faith in Jesus Christ, then what in the world is keeping you from taking the plunge under the water? Okay. Don't worry. We're not going to hold you under, okay? We'll, let you, we'll bring you back out, okay? So, come and talk to myself, Pastor Nathan, or one of our deacons. Talk to us about it, okay? Well, Jesus, just as He has given us this tremendous practice to do that symbolizes our entrance into the Christian life, He has also commanded a second practice that symbolizes our continued fellowship with the Lord, okay? Now that we've entered in. And it's called the Lord's Supper. And it's what we're going to do as an assembled body of believers today. And about this command, Jesus said, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. Paul also tells us that to do it as, or he's talking to the Corinthians, and says, as often as you do it. Meaning, we are to do this with some regularity. And it's up to the churches how often they practice it. Now, earlier we looked in the book of Acts. Remember this in Acts chapter 2? It said, so those who received his word were baptized, okay? And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, here's how the passage continues, okay? And these baptized believers, they devoted themselves, listen, to the apostles' teaching, right? And that makes sense because Jesus said, make sure you teach them all that I have commanded you. And they devoted themselves to fellowship. And then look at this, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread. Every scholar you read will tell you that this breaking of bread was not just a meal, but a meal that would have included or maybe concluded with the Lord's Supper. Okay. But the point is this. You read the order here in this passage, right? Like baptism, the Lord's Supper is not a check-off item, that a person does to get made right with God. It's for the person who has first repented and believed in the gospel. For the those who have accepted that offer of salvation. First you come to Him, otherwise this table is not going to nourish you, it's going to rot you. I'm not kidding. Listen, if you participate in the Lord's Supper as an unbeliever... Here's what it's going to be communicating to you, that you can be saved if you do this. And that's not, what we, that's not what we're saying here. Okay. Apart from faith, the mere observance of this meal will give someone a false assurance that actually, well, I must be right with God. I've eaten the meal. And actually you'll be more condemned leaving here than when you walked in. Because we're not saved by any works. So if you're here today... Okay, and you have not first believed in Jesus Christ, then I'm going to ask you, if we come to this part of the service, that you just let this bread and this cup pass by. Okay? And rather than partaking in it, what I want you to do is listen to what it means. But listen now. Okay? If in the reading and hearing of God's Word today, even at this very moment, you say, you know what? I don't know why I have not but I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that He's my salvation. And you pray to God in that way. Then listen, this meal is for you. And there's nothing holding us back from giving it to you. Okay. As our statement of faith declares, you can read this, the EFCA, baptism and the Lord's Supper are to do two things. They are to confirm and to nourish the believer. That's what they're for. Okay, And if we were to look to the origin of this command, you would find it in the book of Matthew, you'd find it in Mark, and you'd find it in Luke. Okay? And we could look at any of those, but today I just want to look at Matthew. Okay? So the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. He tells us, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, do you recall the occasion of this meal? It was the time of Passover. So for centuries, Jewish families ate bread and they drank wine. These were elements of that meal as they celebrated the way God was delivering them out of Egyptian slavery. Remember that? And... This Passover time involved a lamb being sacrificed and its blood covering their house. Do you remember the story, right? In Exodus. And when the angel of the Lord came down in judgment upon the Egyptians, he passed over the houses that were what? Covered by the blood. So, the blood turned away the judgment of God from that home. Think about that. Now, let me ask you something. Don't you think that God could have differentiated between those that were His people and those that were not? I mean, did He really need them to put blood of a lamb over their house to know, oh, I shouldn't go in there and judge those people? Well, why was God doing in all of that? It's All of that. The reason God had them do that was to point ahead to the true Passover lamb. And now here, as we just read, on the eve of His death, it all became clear that all along, this Passover meal was a picture of Jesus Christ. So the Lord's Supper, as it would now be called, was a sign. It's a symbol, like baptism, of what? Of the Gospel. Right? The bread, Matthew tells us, is His body. The cup, His blood of the covenant, which is what? Poured out for our sins. So I'm going to ask, actually, if our deacons wouldn't mind coming up right now, In celebrating the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is proclaiming the gospel, right? And that includes the death and the resurrection of Jesus, right? right? His body and His blood being broken and shed for us was His atonement. But you know, the resurrection was there as well. Because Jesus said, I'm not going to drink it again until I come into my Father's kingdom. Well, how can He do that unless He comes back from the dead? He didn't stay dead. So every time we take this meal, we are proclaiming that Jesus is alive and that he's coming back soon. Can I give you a helpful analogy as we conclude today? You might think of these things as you would a marriage. Okay? And what baptism is, is your I do, right? When you say I do, that's what baptism is. Really, it's God saying, you belong to me. God's speaking over you. You are mine. And then every time we come to this table, it's God saying, I still love you. And I'm not going to stop. Now, I don't know about you. I mean, it's good in our marriage to renew our covenant vows, maybe at least on our anniversary, you know. But I hope that's not the only time you do it. We need to do it like on a weekly basis. And that's why we do this often. To hear again Jesus say, I love you. I gave my body for you. I gave my blood for you. Would you pray for this week, Vacation Bible School? Not just as another activity to get busy with, but as a meaningful ministry of God's Holy Spirit as churches come together to give the Word of God to them. I got the privilege to teach night number one, so kind of kicking things off. I'm excited for that. Uh, But pray for the week and you think of it. And then, um, and also, uh, today is going to be our kind of our membership small group. Let's talk about what it means to belong to a church. So if you're thinking, hey, you know what? I see the importance of this, or I want to know more about it. In the library, in about 10, 15 minutes, we're going to get together for the next 40, 40 minutes, maybe an hour, and just talk about, begin to talk about what that means, okay? So plan to be back there if you're, if you're going to be part of that, all right? All right, have a great week. God's grace and peace to you. Hopefully we'll see you really soon.